And would you please take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I referred to this passage last Sunday morning in our study of the book of Acts. We were looking at the generosity of the church in Antioch, how they determined to send relief to the brethren who were dwelling in Judea. And here in this chapter, the Apostle Paul was writing to the Corinthians to stir them up to sacrificial giving as well. And in order to encourage them and motivate them to such liberality, he sets before them two very powerful examples. The first example was that of the Macedonian churches uh, who gave not out of their abundance, but out of their poverty. He says in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. And the grace he's speaking of there is the grace of giving, that this was bestowed upon them, this generous heart uh, given to them by the Lord Himself. And he says they gave not out of their abundance, but out of their poverty. And what a, a wonderful example they were. As I said, they dug deep down into their pockets uh, to give so liberally to their poor brethren in Jerusalem. And they were indeed a great example. But then he sets before them an even greater example, and that is the greatest example Imaginable, the greatest example of all, that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you through His poverty might become rich. I like how he says the, regarding the Macedonian church, you know uh, the the we make or we make known to you the grace of God bestowed upon the church of Macedonia and here he says you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ perhaps they didn't know or weren't aware of the Macedonians and how much they had given but certainly they knew about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ they were on the receiving end as we all are of that grace there's nothing that will motivate a Christian like the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This motivates us to do anything and everything. You remember Hopeful in Pilgrim's Progress. He said, I thought that had I a thousand gallons of blood in my body, I would give it all for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. His grace makes us gracious and giving. What is grace? It's the unmerited favor of God. And Paul explains it here. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He explains what that grace was. Though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you through His poverty might become rich. Grace has been defined by that acrostic using the four letters uh, or the, uh, the five letters of grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. I think that's a good way to remember the grace of God. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. 
And so Paul explains what he means here. He says, first of all, that Jesus or God, that the Lord Jesus Christ was rich. Charles Spurgeon calls this a poor, miserable word, <laughs> this word rich. But he says it's the best he could find. It was actually richness beyond comparison. Now, when was Christ rich? Well, we know he wasn't rich at his birth. He was born not in a palace, but in a stable, a dirty old stable. Even the nativity scenes we see at Christmas time don't accurately reflect just how poor this was. They could find no room for him at the end, so he was born in a stable, a stable, a smelly stable, a dirty stable, a stable where animals live, not people. But that's where Jesus Christ was born. And he wasn't rich during his lifetime. His parents weren't rich. His father was a carpenter. You remember when he was born and they took him to the temple and they came and brought their sacrifice. And they brought the sacrifice of a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. That was the sacrifice of the poor, not of the rich or the well-to-do. They couldn't afford a lamb according to the law of Moses. So God allowed them to bring something of far less value. He said to his disciples, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He wasn't rich in his death. You remember when the soldiers stripped him of his garments and they divided it among themselves. It appears that's all he owned. We say the shirt on our back. Well, that's all he had. And when he died, he didn't even have a grave to be buried in. So they put him in a borrowed tomb, the, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. So he wasn't rich here on earth. So when was he rich? Well, he was rich before he ever came to this earth. He came down from heaven. No one can say that. I came down from above. But Christ could say that. I came down from above. He existed in heaven, and heaven is a rich place. Now, sometimes we see the lifestyles of the rich and the famous, and we can hardly imagine what that's like. I'm sure you think that sometimes when you see the extravagance of these Russian oligarchs. Some of them have $500 million yachts. <laughs> They're unbelievable. It's like a little city floating on the water, and they own it. It's theirs. But we can't even begin to imagine that. But that even doesn't compare with the riches in heaven. When it comes to the riches of Christ before His incarnation, we really have nothing on earth by which to compare it. The Bible speaks of the treasures in heaven. In your presence, that is in the presence of God, is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus spoke of the glory that He had with the Father before the world began. He wanted His disciples to see that glory and to experience it in heaven. But He was rich not because of heaven itself, but He was rich by virtue of His divine being. He existed, Paul tells us, in the form of God. Philippians 2. 
Or more simply put, He was God. He was rich because He was God. In need of nothing. He's not served by human hands as though He needed anything, Paul said. He existed in perfect harmony and communion within the Holy Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Perfectly happy, existing eternally in the bosom of the Father. There is perfect love, perfect joy, undisturbed. He was rich. He was rich by virtue of His divine possessions. And we know that He possesses all things, for He made all things. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the great floods. He made everything. There's nothing made that He did not make. In Colossians 1.16, the Apostle Paul said that in Him or by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether there be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. Again, our Minds, the wheels of our minds just spin because we can't even begin to fathom what this means. John Murray described it in this way. He said, Astronomy and physics have taught us many instructive and indeed edifying things regarding this universe in which we live. They have taught us something of the vastness and grandeur of its beauty and wonder, of its intricacy and delicacy. At our best, in the presence of all of this, we are but as children who have gathered a few pebbles on the ocean shore. But we do get a glimpse of the riches of power, wisdom, design, and purpose manifested in God's handiwork. Remember Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that the things that are seen reveal His eternal power and Godhead. Murray said, But it is the Lord Jesus of whom Paul speaks who made it all, and in Him all things consist. There is nothing in the universe, nothing in its grand immensity, nothing in its most infinitesimal minuteness that He has not made, and that He does not have exhaustively comprehended. All things are by Him and for Him. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. The riches of the Lord Jesus Christ are riches ultimate, absolute, infinite, and eternal to which there is no addition and from which there can be no subtraction. We can't even imagine, as I said, to own so much. And even the things we own, we sometimes feel like we don't really own them. (laughs) We're just using them. But He owns them. They're His. They belong to Him. And so, he was rich before he ever came to this world, Paul says. But, he says, he became poor. Or literally, he impoverished himself. Again, the word poor is not near strong enough. When and how did he become poor? Well, he became poor when he became a man. Uh, This is very humbling for men and humans to think of this, that by becoming a man, he humbled himself. Now, the proud think that this was an exaltation. This shows how great we were. No. 
It shows how humbling he was. The very act of his becoming a man has been called his humiliation, which is an accurate description of what he did. And if there is a comparison at all, it might be something to the effect of a a man becoming a snail or a slug. You know, people talk about reincarnation. What would you like to come back as and so forth? Well, it's always a, a noble animal. Nobody said, I want to come back as a slug. I want to come back as a worm. I want to come back as a gnat. No, they think of greater things. But he becoming a man would be like us becoming a worm. Again, John Murray reminds us that under the most ideal of human and earthly conditions, it would have still been humiliation simply because of the distance between the Creator and the creature. It's so great. And then to take on the form of a sinful man, he came into a world of sin. I mean, if he had come into the Garden of Eden, that still would have been an act of humiliation. I mean to become a man in the Garden of Eden. That still would have been an act of humiliation. But he took on the form of sinful flesh and for sin. He took on human nature, human nature that had been weakened by sin and subject to weakness and frailty. Martin Luther wrote the hymn, Once did the skies before thee bow, a virgin's arms contain thee now. Angels who did in thee rejoice, now listen for thine infant voice. What a beautiful thought. He humbled himself and became a man. And we can follow him throughout his life and we, we stand amazed at his utter condescension. Born in Beth- Bethlehem. Now, that was the little town of Bethlehem and it was a little town of Bethlehem. You would think the great ruler of the people of God would be born in Jerusalem, the city of David, the city of God, but he was born in Bethlehem. And again, we see him lying in the manger, a a feeding trowel. He was brought up in Nazareth. He was asked with contempt, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And yet that's where our Lord Jesus grew up. Throughout his life, he would have been considered poor. And we can follow him all the way through his life and to the very end when he's coming down to the Garden of Gethsemane. And even there, his closest companions couldn't even wait with him for an hour while he prayed to the Father. He said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. The disciples fell asleep. And within an hour or so, even his closest companions, his His closest friends would forsake Him in His greatest hour of need. You know, when we lose everything, we say, well, at least you have your friends. But that's not always so, is it? It certainly wasn't with the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, He was very popular at one point or several points in His ministry. But at the very end, there was no one. He had to walk the wine press alone. Even his friends were taken from him. There's an old blues song. Mr. Skeels mentioned blues in the script in one of the hymns today. The blues. There's a there's a wonderful old blues song. It says, "Nobody knows you when you're down and out." 
I had a lot of friends at one time, but I lost all my money and I have no more friends. Well, that's the idea here. He had nothing. They, li- they tried my Lord and Master with no one to defend. Within the hall of Pilate, he stood without a friend. John Murray again said, It's one thing to be mocked, scourged, and nailed to the accursed tree by his foes. It's one thing to even be forsaken by his friends. But the climax of self-impoverishment is reached only when he speaks the words on the cross that registered the most mysterious experience that ever transpired in the world's history. You know what those words were? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Professor Doug Kelly, one of the professors I had at at RTS, said there's something like standing on the shore of the vast ocean with the water lapping up around our feet. We scarce can imagine, he said, what's going on 100, 200, 500, 1,000 miles out. That's what's like to try to understand the depth of his humiliation. Why have you forsaken me? Someone said that he died the second death before he died the first death. The second death, I mentioned that this morning, the second death is when we are separated from God. Separated from the life of God. He was separated from that life before he even died physically. The separation and abandonment of God was the depth of his poverty. He became poor, the Apostle says. So the Apostle says not only was he rich and that he became poor, he explains the reason for his impoverishment or why he impoverished himself. Why did he become poor? He says, yet for your sakes, he became poor. You see, it wasn't mere drama. It wasn't just to see what it's like. You hear of people that are wealthy and they'll they'll dress up in ragged clothes and they'll walk among the homeless just to see and feel what it's like. Well, this wasn't anything like that. It wasn't to see what it was like. Paul tells us that it was for your sakes he became poor. He was pursuing a determinate goal. He impoverished himself that he might enrich us. For your sakes he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. Now this implies something about us, doesn't it? It implies that we are indeed by nature poor. We are poor, wretched sinners. Sin and Satan have robbed us of everything that is good. When Satan first came to our first parents in the Garden of Eden and tempted them, he essentially robbed them and robbed us of the greatest treasure we could ever have, and that is our relationship with the true and the living God. Thomas Brooks said, Beloved Satan, being fallen from light to darkness, from felicity to misery, from heaven to hell, from angel to a devil, is so full of malice and envy 
that he will leave no means unattempted whereby he may make all others eternally miserable with himself. He being shut out of heaven and shut up under the chains of darkness till judgment for the great day makes use of all of his power and skill to bring all the sons of men into the same condition and condemnation with himself. And he achieved that in the Garden of Eden. For we are all born dead in our trespasses and sin. We are all born bankrupt, spiritually speaking. But ever since, men have been trying, trying their hardest to enrich themselves. And someone has said that there is a God-shaped vacuum in every man. And men are trying to fill that vacuum with all of the things of this world and they can never satisfy. We're so full of pride and self-righteousness that we can't even see how poor we really are. In this life, we try to satisfy ourselves with the husks of this world. The things that can never satisfy. But it tells us that through Christ, we can become rich. <laughs> he says that you, through His poverty, might become rich. He describes those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as being rich. He says regarding His own ministry as an apostle, though poor, we are making many rich. The apostles had nothing like the Lord Jesus. They weren't wealthy men. They were very poor. And yet, he says, we are making many rich. Rich by preaching the gospel, the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ, that He did come down from heaven to save sinners. He came down to enrich in us. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, Paul said, I have not seen nor ear heard nor entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. And it's been pointed out that he's not speaking there primarily of heaven, but he's speaking of the vast riches of the blessings of salvation. As he speaks of in Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And these are true riches, everlasting riches, riches indeed. The gospel has been called a treasure in earthen vessels. That means Paul being the earthen vessel and ministers being the earthen vessels. They are carrying the good news of salvation. This treasure. And it is a treasure to all who find it. Jesus said it's like the man who is out in the field and he discovers a great treasure and he goes and sells everything he has and buys the field. So he can acquire this treasure. Jesus Christ is the treasure of heaven. Paul wrote of the great honor of preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. Making many rich. You think of the riches of salvation. The riches of justification. Justification. That essentially is to have your sins forgiven and, and to be declared Righteous in the sight of God. We who are sinners, ripe for condemnation, are declared righteous through the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's riches. 
You ask anyone who's plagued with guilt. Anyone who's on their dying bed plagued with the guilt of their life, of their sins. They can't wash the spot out. They can't rid themselves of the guilt. But the Lord Jesus Christ takes our guilt for us. He bore our transgressions. He, he, he who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He makes many rich. The riches of having our sins forgiven. This perfect righteousness of His Son. You remember the poor publican standing afar off in the temple. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. He understood the guilt of sin. He understood that he was a wretch. He understood that he deserved nothing from the hand of God. And so he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. While the Pharisees standing over there, rich with pride, rich, he thought, in good works. And he began to parade those good works before God, thinking that God would somehow be impressed. I thank you that I am not like other men. And he begins to list the most notorious sins. And then he sees the man over there or like that publican. Thank you that I'm not like him. And yet the Lord Jesus said regarding the publican that he went back to his house justified. Justified. Declared righteous in the sight of a holy God. Justified rather than the other. Paul speaks in Ephesians 1 of being accepted in the Beloved. That is, by God Himself received and welcomed a sinner. We who have sinned against Him in word and thought and deed sin more than the hairs of our head like a mountaintop of guilt. We have been accepted in the Beloved. We have been adopted. What do you think of the blessing of adoption? That He has bestowed upon us the unspeakable honor of being called the children of God. That's what John says. Oh, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And such, he says, we are. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. He has given us His Holy Spirit whereby we cry, Abba, Father, we have the blessing and riches of having an advocate with, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You remember what John says in 1 John chapter 2, I write these things so that you do not sin. But if anyone sins, which is inevitable, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, we need an advocate because we have sinned and we have also an adversary, an accuser of the brethren, even Satan himself, who will accuse us before God. He'll point out our sins not only to us, but point them out to God. But we have an advocate with the Father. Now, we, we make fun of lawyers and, and, all, and all kinds of lawyer jokes and, and so forth. And there's some pretty unscrupulous lawyers out there. But it's been said that no one particularly cares for a lawyer until they need one. 
then they become their best friend. <laughs> they, they love them. They want them. They want to hear from them. Well, you and I need a friend in heaven. We need a lawyer, someone who will stand up for us. The devil, our adversary, is the accuser of the brethren. He'll stand up against us, but we need to have an advocate with the Father. Sometimes our own sins and our consciences rise up against us and they condemn us before the throne of God. Oh, you're not worthy even to pray. Who are you? Who are you to talk to others about Christ? Who are you to even come to church? You're such a sinner. But we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the propitiation, John says, for our sins and not for ours only, but for the whole world. He has paid the full price for our sins. And so He has the argument that we need to stand before God. He doesn't plead our innocence. He doesn't plead our circumstances. He doesn't say, well, they couldn't help it. They're just men after all, you know. They're just young men. They have to sow their wild oats. Or they're just old men. They have to, they're allowed a little bit of foolishness and harshness and so forth. No, He pleads His bleeding wounds. Five bleeding wounds He bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They, those wounds, strongly plead for Me. And what do they plead? Forgive Him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. We have an advocate. We are rich. We are very rich. And not only that, we have an inheritance in heaven and which... Peter says it's incorruptible, undefiled, reserved in heaven for us. Imagine that. We would love to leave our children an inheritance. But you and I as Christians have a greater inheritance than anyone has ever had on earth. Someone said we just lack the imagination necessary to grasp with any adequacy the richness and texture of the life to come. And the Apostle Paul admitted this as well in Romans chapter 8 when he speaks of all of our sufferings. And Christians have gone through sufferings and Paul had gone through more than most. And yet he said this, I don't consider the sufferings of this present time to be worthy with the glory that will be revealed in us. That is on the day of redemption. He has made my heaven secure. We'll hear all good provide. While Christ is rich, can I be poor? What can I want beside? Now this ought to bring great contentment to us. We can lack the things of this earth. We can lack our health. We can even lack our friends. Friends may fail thee. Foes assail thee. He, my Savior, makes me whole. He is our Savior. What thankfulness to the Lord of glory we should have that He would so impoverish Himself. Had He remained in heaven, we would forever remain in hell. When He came to the Garden of Gethsemane, He said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from Me. And I've explained many times that that cup was the cup of God's wrath that He must drink. He said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And had that cup passed from me and he not 
taken it and drank it to his dregs, we would have had to drink it. What generosity this should produce in us in giving to the cause of Christ and and doing whatever we can for His glory as freely as you've received, so freely give, the Apostle Paul said. Do you know something of this grace? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? He could say to the Corinthians, you know the grace of God, but do you? Do you know the grace of God? Have you been made rich through Christ's poverty? Do you even feel your own poverty? Do you know something of what your sins have done and what you deserve because of them? Do you know how Christ became poor that you might be rich? I love the song, Just As I Am. It says, Just as I am, poor, wretched, blind. Sight, riches, healing of the mind. Yes, all I need in Thee to find. O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Realize that, that Christ can make you richer than any man on earth. The poorest saint in heaven is richer than the richest sinner on earth. He makes us rich. Rich indeed. Not with... $500 million boats, but with a heaven that no one can take away. Where rust and moths do not corrupt. And thieves cannot break in and steal. That's where your treasure should be, in heaven. Set your affection on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's where we find riches indeed. We can rejoice in this. And as we take the Lord's Supper tonight, Remember that this same Lord Jesus was rich. And yet for our sakes, He became poor. That we through His poverty might become rich and very, very rich. Let's pray.